Hello and welcome. This is Pastor Ken Ortiz, and this is my regular podcast entitled What the World is Coming to. In this podcast, what I attempt to do is take a look at events that are transpiring in the world and see how they line up with what the Bible foretells us are going to be the signs or the indicators that we are living in those last times, those things we read about in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and Zechariah, and other places, where it tells us that human history is not just floating along, uh, but rather it is uh, being directed by God. It is being led to certain conclusions. And uh, the biggest part for us as followers of Jesus Christ is how do we really organize and focus our life in a way that we live consistently with God's will, particularly as the times according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when the times become increasingly, he said, perilous or troublesome and very difficult. In fact, uh, basically in chapter 2, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he lists the behavioral characteristics of people during those last times, I think we might just summarize it under the category as that people will be increasingly uh, narcissistic and sociopathic. Um, Essentially, there's such an inward focus and such a self-absorption that uh, human empathy is forgotten. And people, on the one hand, have delusions of grandeur, where they think they're uh, better than God, or if not God themselves. And secondly, they really live for satisfying their every want and desire so that uh, they really have no empathetic concern or care for other people around them. Um, but it's also a time, I think, that interestingly, the, the prophet Daniel in chapter 9, uh, verse 7, in, in the King James Version, the way they translated it, he had this prayer that he offered to God. He said, O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, confusion of faces. And that's what I've given as the title of this particular uh, program, Confusion of Faces. Uh, The King James is the only one that gives really kind of a very literal translation. Many of them use the word shame, but I think it really misses the original meaning behind the idea of confusion of faces. See, in Daniel's day, it meant that people didn't know which god to follow because every idol or every god that was worshipped had an image with a face on it, and so they worshipped that one. And the question was, which one is the true god and which one is not? It was extra challenging for Israel because their god um, manifested himself in an invisible presence. That's why in the holiest of holies there was a, a throne that we call the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, But there was no image there because God could not be represented and really commanded that he never be represented or attempted to by any kind of physical or or structural image that we might make called an idol. But if we look at that metaphor in light of the times we're living in, it's describing people's inability to discern what is true and what is false, what is moral and what is immoral or amoral. Uh, In other words, they don't know the difference between right, wrong, good or evil, false or truth. And it's the time in which Ezekiel the prophet said that men would be really calling good things evil and calling evil things good. And we certainly are living in that kind of world today. But it also is important for us that when we look at this kind of confusion that will overtake people, 
in the end times that Paul told us in in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. He said this would be a time of a powerful delusion so that they would believe the lie of the enemy. And so confusion is really what brings people into grasping for any kind of answer, any kind of solution. Now, some people will always argue saying, well, this has always been the problem. There's always been moral issues. People have always been guilty of transgressions and so forth. And, And that certainly is true. I mean, there's been some very low points in human history, like before the flood, where it says that every thought was continually wicked, or even in the uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that God put his judgment on these nations and, and held them accountable for the things that they were doing. So, I mean, all of these things are, are pretty uh, understandable and have a lot of historical um, precedent. But we need to understand that it's really just a matter of degree. Because in the end times, basically, men would become, as uh, Paul put it in, in 2 Timothy 3.13, he said that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so what we find is that there's going to be a heightened level of evil and iniquity, but to the point where Isaiah put it in 59 uh, verse 19, he says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. And so we have this, uh, really this two-sided issue that we have to work through, that on the one hand, the enemy will come be coming in like a flood. And I would say that uh, beginning, at least in America, for with the Biden administration, we've seen uh, a, a influx of, of evil things, uh, uh, homosexuality, immorality, of just about every kind of immorality you can imagine, the legalization of drugs and, and everything of that nature, that uh, is worse and un- unprecedented it's as they claim that they would be the most progressive administration ever, and they've certainly fulfilled that. But uh, progressive doesn't mean you're making progress morally. It means you're making progress immorally. And so in a sense, we've seen a kind of tsunami, a flood of iniquity being promoted within the United States and really being filtered out into the entire globe as uh, the United States, whether you like it or not, tends to be the trendsetter for most things that go on in the world. The other side of it is that God says he'll raise up a standard. In other words, God will really hold up really a kind of a banner that his people can focus on and move towards. And that becomes the challenge that you and I are, are facing. Do we get caught up in the current of the decadence that's overtaking our world? Or do we find ourselves moving away, picking the narrow path and not the wide, easy path? Now, where this confusion really kind of builds is that we have a really a plethora of new terms, new definitions of old terms. And what it's really done is it's caused the language to become obfuscated. Now, that's a big word. What does the word obfuscation mean? Well, it means that you talk in a way that obscures the meaning of what you're actually trying to say. And it makes the message harder to understand because you're using confusing and ambiguous language. Uh, In fact, uh, George Orwell in his book, 1984, uh, described this as new speak, a a new way way of talking, which was really not a new way of communicating, but actually a way of rendering uh, common language 
unintelligible and replacing it with just uh, you basically uh, words that you say uh, that have really uh, no real defined meaning. In fact, we would the word racism in America Day is thrown out all the time, and yet nobody really sits down and with any kind of nuanced effort and saying, what do you mean exactly by racism? Uh, this is why we see one of the primary tenets or really kind of the ideological foundations for this new way of looking at life uh, called critical race theory. Uh, and at the core of it is this idea that white people experience what's called white privilege. Now, I find this kind of humorous because I was talking to my father-in-law, who's 98 years old, and, and I was talking to him about his white privilege, and he quite didn't follow what I was saying, understandably, but he, it was interesting. I pointed out to him, he said, here you are, Tom, you were born in, <laughs> in the early part of the 1900s, and, and you, were, uh, you were born inside a, a sod and grass house. Uh, out in the prairie. You had no shoes. Your father died when you were two years of age. Your mother had to farm the kids out. You lived in with about half a dozen different relatives growing up. And when you got old enough to sit out on your own, you were you were drafted into the army and you went to the war and you came back and you didn't have a dime to your name and you scraped and you scrambled your whole life just to put food on the table and housing for your family. And I said, Tom, where was your privilege as a white man? Well, he was a poor white man. He didn't have any privilege. He didn't go past the eighth grade educationally, although he's an avid reader. So it's it's kind of this misconception and nobody really asks, what exactly does that mean really for the white man? It's just a label that's put on people. And I think that what happens is we're finding we're being inundated with all these kind of confusing terms that are really, I think, designed to bully people into silence and compliance uh, so that we feel like we don't really know what's going on. And as a consequence, we'll leave the driving to others. And that's really the agenda, I think, behind it is to take control of the culture and redirect it in what these people consider to be a better way. Now, some of the issues that are terminology that we've talked about last week, I talked about deconstructionism. Uh, and I want to really introduce the, the Christian version of deconstructionism, which is called deconversion. And it's the idea that you were a converted to Christianity and now you're being deconverted. Basically, you're having to go through and deconstruct everything that you believe to be true, particularly what's written in the Bible, and come to a, a new concept or a new awareness of what is really true and not. Uh, then we've talked about a little bit, I'll go into a little bit about critical race theory and try to summarize that rather quickly. And then last of all, there's the whole issue of the LGBTQ plus uh, LMNOP, the transgenderism, the non-binary gender, gender fluidity, and all these things. Are you cisgender or all these kind of things that most people um, who aren't um, in their 20s just kind of look look at it and go, I have no idea what you're talking about. And as I said, that that's what Orwell said, that uh, he feared the the totalitarianism that would take over the world was a new way of speaking that designed to reduce language's function of communication into simple phrases that really don't have any clear definition. It's it's really, as, as uh, Orwell put it, he says, it's designed to diminish the range of thought and thereby it removes all subtle nuances or deeper meaning. And we just 
throw labels out like white, uh, white privilege or racism and all these kind of things that nobody really sits down and has a deep and intelligent conversation. I remember an interview I watched the other day of a one of the leaders of the CRT movement, and they asked him, what is your definition of racism? And his answer was so confusing and, and, and meaningless that even the audience that supported him started laughing. And it was really uh, kind of indicative of the fact that he really didn't have any real clear sense of what it was other than the fact that by promoting it the way he did, he was making a great living for himself. But even the idea of racism, I would suggest to you, is a false construct because biologically there is no such thing as race. I mean, uh, we are all basically human beings. We are all the same. And even though we may have different cut levels of pigment in our skin, that doesn't make us different. We can still procreate together, which makes us part of the same family. So I think in a sense that this perception that we have, and it's a perception that we don't really see uh, in the ancient world very much. I mean, in fact, when we read the scriptures, unless you know the nationalities that are listed, you don't realize that there was a conglomeration of racial differences and people didn't think much about it. They didn't value or devalue people on those kind of external uh, characteristics. They did what uh, I think Martin Luther King said was his ideal, that a man would be judged by the contact, content of his character character, not the color of his skin. Um, so what we're really talking about when they use these words about racism is really about the politics of ethnicity and culture. And really, they're, they're trying to really highlight the ethnic differences, which leads to kind of a tribalism. And we're also they're also leading to a, um, an idea of destroying one culture and replacing it with one that they think is far better. What I refer to this as diametrics. Now, it's kind of a word I made up, but it, it's really kind of a contrast with biometrics. Biometrics, we know, is things like your fingerprint or your face print or things like that that are used to recognize who you are. And biometrics, you'll use basically scientific characteristics that we have in common to identify us specifically. So it's the idea of uh, emphasizing your individual identity in relationship to everybody else's identity. Whereas this term diametrics, as I use it, does just the opposite. It, it seeks to really bring us to a place where we have nothing in common and therefore we become essentially unrecognizable except within the categories that uh, our masters want us to fit into. You see, what the, all this is really about, all these different ideas and, and terms and words and so forth, is to destroy unity and replace it first with chaos to the point where those who are the masterminds behind this will be able to reconstruct a new metric, a new way of measuring people, and particularly one that is devoid of God. And I think that's why we have to understand where, where this idea, these ideas come from. They come right from the pits of hell. And it's essential to understand that none of the current social ideologies are about unity at all, but they're about division. Uh, deconstructionism makes truth reality whatever I want it to be. And basically, it's so narcissistic in its focus, but that basically, I'm saying that you have to accept me for who I say I am. And uh, the problem is that it's void of any kind of objectivity. Uh, deconversion, I said, the, is the process that those who are raised with a biblical rubric of life, their view of the world through the Bible, have they demolish that. In fact, I, I love what uh, John Stone Street uh, said about it. Let me read uh, what he posted recently in one of his blogs. He says, it's the idea that human autonomy and personal ideas 
about what is best for us has to be moved to the center of our faith. In other words, the question we ask is, is it good for me and does it make me happy? And if it does, then that's something I'll embrace. And if for some reason it makes me unhappy, then I eject it. So for example, if I want to sleep with my girlfriend, uh, and the Bible says you can't do that, I'll simply say, well, I don't believe that anymore. I believe that I can do this because this makes me happy, at least for the moment. He goes on to explain, he says, primary and, and maybe even the sole judge of what works is us. Even worse, he adds, the criteria that determines whether beliefs or religious practice works is determined by us, all of which fails to take into account just how often our actual motives are hidden from us. We may tell ourselves we struggle with a particular reading of Genesis, while our doubts really lie in our inability to live up to Christianity's moral demands. Or more to the point, within the context of our culture's reframing of the highest goods, we may simply not like what we don't get to pick and choose what to believe. Um, he goes on to speak of uh, one of these uh, proponents of the idea of this uh, kind of deconstructionism. He says that he describes what he describes as more of a demolition than a deconstruction, because what remains is often a hollow shell of a faith, one lacking any external and fixed points of truth by which we can find orientation in a chaotic world. In other words, he says it creates more chaos, not less, and it leads to a life that is less organized, not more organized, because we are so arbitrary as individuals that really what we need to be seeking out is the common ground, which is, thus saith the Lord. It's the scriptures. Well, talking about critical race theory a little bit, uh, I know that's something that has confused many people, even though it's voiced all the time as being promoted in schools and in, in business and so forth. But basically, it began with a guy by the name of Ted Allen, who wrote a book called The Invention of the White Race. And it's interesting, Ted Allen was a white man, and he was a Marxist. And he basically summed it up. He thought that capitalism was the, resulted in racism. In other words, the whole idea of capitalism is to give white people an economic advantage. And so it was all about racism, according to his thinking, and he called it white skin privilege, where the term later white privilege came in. And he said, basically, quote, to end racism, we must end capitalism. Now, I refer to people like Alan and some of the others that came as well-intentioned dragons. I mean, they were identifying a real social ill, which was racism and the economic prejudice and, and de deprivation that it created, along with many other violent and criminal things. But again, it's as someone once said that uh, the effort to gain justice without Jesus always ends up being unjust. And that's the problem. But in Alan's mind, he thought that if we could change the world to a Marxist capitalist system where everybody had everything in common, um, then you would uh, have equality. And the problem is that we can have equality, but we can't have equity because none of us are all the same. Uh, well, he was followed by another guy named Noel Ignatian, and he wrote a book. They actually worked together on a book called Blind Spot. And his comment, where his most famous quote is, the treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity. And in other words, here again, he's a white man. He's being traitorous to his whiteness, and but in doing that, he's being loyal to the rest of humanity. And the idea is there's certain, a certain self-loathing that uh, these gentlemen had by, by, about their, their uh white uh, skin color. 
Well, these men really kind of began to form the foundation of the thought, but it was a guy by the name of Derek Bell who was the first black Harvard law professor who took this idea of critical race theory and brought it into academia and introduced it into the legal profession. And his concept was this is the way that will bring justice to people of color. By the way, he was a major influence on our former president, our 44th president, Barack Obama. Um, He was one of many people that helped to formulate and form his thought processes. But um, the ideas that Dr. Bell uh, put forward were really picked up on a theological level by a guy by the name of James Cone. And uh, James Cone is one who introduced uh, really critical race theory into the African-American church in the form of black liberation theology. Um, And I I think from what I've read of Dr. Cone's writings, I, I think he was a true believer. I mean, I think he was genuinely trying to uplift the black community and give them a sense of identity and and self-respect and and confidence and courage. And this is the problem because if people see themselves as victims, then they never really, uh, they just wait for a a deliverer to come and save them from their victimization. And so really, uh, I think he had a good idea. The problem is that if you allow yourself to see yourself as a victim, then you will always remain one. The only way you can help yourself is to refuse to be victimized. Well, anyway, he had a great influence upon on men like Jeremiah Wright, who was a pastor of Barack Obama, and Raphael Warnock, who was recently elected to the U.S. Senate from Georgia. And if you've listened to either one of these men, it's very clear that they hate America. Uh, they have a, just they really have a hard uh, feelings towards the white race, and uh, you know they they fit more in the Malcolm X uh, kind of category of thinking. Um, but that really had has had a great influence upon the African American church. Now a more recently in what's come into more popular uh, domains are people like white the book like white fragility written by robin d'angelo and uh it's interesting because the idea of white fragility is that you become uncomfortable and uh, defensive because you're a white person if somebody prevents you presents you with information about racial inequality or injustice and it kind of creates this catch-22 that if you say well i'm not a racist they say well the fact that you say that proves that you are. So it's kind of a catch-22. You can't really win. And really what it's done is it creates this kind of conundrum where you just shut up and don't say anything. I think, as Maisie Hirono, one of our senators, said when uh, when Brett Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh was being accused in, in the Senate uh, of, of sexual immorality, uh, you know, her comment was, why don't you men just shut up and, and do what's right? And that's kind of the idea behind this. Just shut up and do what we tell you because what's right is whatever we tell you you should do. Um, that was followed more recently even with uh, a, a, the 19, a 1619 Project, which is really something the New York Times Magazine has promoted, but was really primarily written by a, uh, a questionable historian by the name of Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, and the idea behind it, according to the Times, was that they aimed to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the United States states as national narrative. In other words, the idea is the whole purpose of founding America was to preserve slavery. And that's that's been the underlying issue, that slavery and racism are the underlying motivation behind American history. Well, uh, 
Hannah Jones has been uh, repudiated by every uh, reputable historian in in the country, and even her own um, uh, the school that she teaches at refused to res- uh, to uh, give her tenure because it's so ludicrous. But it didn't keep her from winning a Pulitzer Prize. But that means that the Pulitzer Prize is given to uh, people for their political views, not for their uh, literary genius. And then we throw into this whole mix of wild ideas is well, the whole what's going on with the LGBTQ plus movement, the transgenderism, the non-binary gender ideas, gender fluidity, and so forth. Uh, the idea that we, you know, that there is no such thing as gender, and we can kind of will ourselves to be whatever gender we want to be. And then finally, there's the word intersectionality, which you may not uh, be familiar with, but again, you'll hear about it more. The idea that there's this overlapping independent system of discrimination or disadvantage. In other words, white people use capitalism, use uh, republicanism, politics, or so forth. They bundle all these together to give them an opportunity to have greater leverage and to keep uh, people of color down. Again, I would say that All of this is really unified, I think, in my mind, by one diabolical objective, and that's to demolish the current social hierarchy based upon the family, the church, and and, and American democracy. Uh, It really seeks to tear down the family, tear down the church, and tear down America America as we know it today, its system of government. And that's why, you know, that uh, Black Lives Matter, for example, which is is part of this whole rubric, um, had stated as one of their purpose was really to put an end to the nuclear family. And they removed that because it was it, it got so many people militant against them that they decided they needed to hide that fact. But you realize that when what Satan's plan is, what God's original plan for mankind to find peace and happiness and security is, uh, is one thing, and then you have Satan with his plan to disorganize everything God sought to bring together into organization. So when we talk about human society, the Bible tells us it's organized around three key things. First is the family. And the family is based upon the premise that, the, that mankind is made up of two kinds of people, males and females. There's only two genders, two sexes. And that's the foundation upon which a society rests, that a man uh, joins himself to his wife and they stay faithful and committed to each other until death do them part. And this is why we've seen an increasing destruction of the family through uh, through things like divorce and and adultery and cohabitation and homosexuality, uh, which can only lead to sterility and a drop in, in, in population, which is always economically unhealthy. But to say all of that, that uh, it really was Satan's plan from the very beginning to destroy the family. I mean, we see it when Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God. And the ver- next thing we read about is that uh, their two sons, uh, Cain, one murders his brother Abel. And then further on, we read about Enoch becoming the first polygamist. And the family right away began to fracture as soon as sin entered into the human condition. So that what we can really surmise is that if there had been no sin, the family would have been the only essential institution necessary. Because God gave a wife to Adam and he said what he did was good. So Adam and Eve became one, they produced children, and they had a family, and that would have been a humanity. And we see that that really is the only institution that really is fully operational until after the flood. But you see, as soon as sin enters in, the second thing is developed. Following the family's development of the church or basically the entity of worship. Because when sin entered into human society, the first thing was needed was a 
atonement, and that atonement would come through sacrifice. So when God made coverings for Adam and Eve, he had to kill an animal in order to do that and to create those skins. And this became the template of offering sacrifice. So when we look at the conflict between Cain and Abel, it's over the issue that Abel brought a lamb from the flock as a sacrifice. Cain brought the production of his fields, basically working by the sweat of his brow, which was the judgment. And so we begin to see two veins of of religious uh, thought and practice. You have one which relies upon the grace of God. We give to him the, the shed blood covering our sins. It's he taking care of what we can't fix for ourselves. The other one is works righteousness. And that's what Cain was doing. And Cain hated what Abel had done so much that he killed his brother. And as Paul would later say to the Galatians, that's still been the practice up until the present time. So uh, this became really what we would call the beginning of religious practice or worship. And all religions that have ever been in, exist in the world all come from the same root motivation, a desire to be reconciled with God, uh, but only Christ provides the perfect sacrifice. He's the only one who was sinlessly perfect and therefore the only one who could die in our place and provide us with our redemption through Christ. The last element that comes into being here is that when we find that after the flood, the earth is destroyed, that God makes an interesting statement. He said that um, that if a man kills another man, he shall be basically executed for what he's done. He's not calling about vengeance or retribution, but rather how there's a system under which we deal with uh, people who are criminal in their behavior. And basically what God recognized is that once sin entered in the world, the only way to really constrain man's lower impulses is to make them governed. And so he created government for this very purpose. In fact, Peter says in 1 King 2.14, or 1 Peter 2.14, excuse me, he says kings and also he says governors are sent by God to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So this is the really the full work that government should be about. It should be punishing those who do wrong things, and it should be commending or promoting those who do right things. So these three things are the foundations upon which civilized society must rest. There has to be um, a, a strong family structure. We know historically when families fall apart, nations and cultures and societies fall apart. There needs to be a strong family. Out of the family, there comes worship, the church, the community of believers, and finally, there's a government that governs over the affairs, the civil affairs of men. Those are three separate things. They're not supposed to really transgress into each other's territory. That uh, The family is the center. The church is a supportive structure and supposed to be a supportive structure around the family. And ultimately, governor, the government is a protective wall that allows the family and the church to fun- function freely. That religious freedom, if you will, is the very central uh, ethic of civilized society. And when that goes, we find that the society becomes increasingly uncivilized. So when we look at all that, we have to understand that um, our world is really kind of divided by uh, really two things there. First of all, the things that we can't change. And what are those things we can't change that men are always trying to change? Well, first of all, we can't change God. And secondly, we can't change his word. 
Nor can we change his overall plan to bring many sons to glory. That's why he has a covenant with Israel that he said, if you can violate the covenant I have with the sun and the moon, uh, then he says, that day is the day I'll violate my, I'll cease having my covenant with Israel, which in fact is what happens when God builds a new heaven and a new earth, that God himself, Christ, will be the son of that of that new reality. And so that will be the end when the, the solar system comes to an end and the planets as we know are extinguished, God will have fulfilled and finished his covenant with Israel, but not till then. And secondly, his covenant with the church. He said the gates of hell would never prevail against it. And so these are things that that can't be changed in our world. We can't change God. We can't reinterpret him and make him fit into our, our design. We can't alter his word. He tells us over and over again not to alter it. And and then again, it comes his, his covenant relationship with Israel and with his church. These things are unchangeable and unalterable. And men, it's really who have tried to have found themselves on the losing end of that effort. But there are a couple of things that you and I can change. And the question is, well, what are those? Well, number one, the fate of men. What our fate is, is in our hands. We can choose to accept God or we can choose to reject him. And and that's one of the things that's most amazing about uh, what God has done. Uh, A friend of mine put it one time, he says that God has given every one of us a, a minimal degree of sovereignty. And essentially what that is, is we can say yes or we can say no to God. There is no other creature on the planet that can do that. We can say no to God, and that whether we say yes or no to God and His Word and His plan is will determine what our fate is in eternity. But that's also true of nations, that nations can determine their fate. And when a nation turns its back on God, and when a nation turns its back on His Word, then what we know is that calamity is beginning to follow. And so that's really when we look at what's happened with many of the, especially the Christian nations around the world. They have rejected the Word, they've rejected Christ, and they're seeking to create a path of utopian happiness of their own design and their own making. And as we read in the book of Revelations, we find that basically in the end, it leads to a tremendous catastrophe. So uh, I think it's important for us to understand that the choices you and I make every single day when we choose to say yes to God's will and we say no to things that aren't in his will, when we begin to evaluate options that are presented to us by the culture, by the society, by our national leaders, and we very prayerfully evaluate, is this uh, in agreement with God's will or is this just another scheme of man uh, to fix uh, his own sin issues or to exalt himself? Uh, how we respond to those, I mean, yes. Yeses and no's become really, really critical in terming what is the fate, uh, first of all, eternally, do I accept Christ and reject him? But even, you know, in, in this life, we can uh, we can be people who are saved and yet make bad decisions, bad choices that have bad consequences because we didn't listen to the word of God, maybe because we don't really pay spend much time learning what it says. And as a result, when you have enough people within one community do that, the whole community suffers, eventually a whole nation, and ultimately the whole world suffers because of this rejection of God and His way. He is the way, Jesus said, the truth, the life, and there's no way to the Father, nor is there any way to the Father's blessing, purpose, and will than to recognize that He is the one and only way. Well, thank you for taking the time to um, take this uh, mental journey with me, and I hope it it adds to your uh, insights 
and strengthens you in having to confront and deal with the issues that were are coming at us with such rapidity. It's kind of staggering. The enemy has come in with a flood, but our God has raised up a banner, the banner of his word of truth. And we need to make sure that that becomes what we focus on. God bless you and, and go in his wondrous grace. In Jesus' name, amen.